Hello, everyone. If we've not met, my name is Michael Brown, and I am on the leadership team. My family and I, Teresa and our children, have been a part of Brookside for, well, several years now. So welcome to Brookside. If you are kind of a regular, welcome home. If you are visiting with us today, it's good to have you in this space and place. And we'd love you to feel at home and feel welcome and feel safe, but also feel challenged. And so we're thankful to have you here today. Children, oh, you have that. You look like you are ready to kick off right now. What grade are you in? Okay. Everybody but second grade kids can head back to, head out of here. Kids, you can go back to Children's Church. I'm going to be in trouble probably later for that. But, um, but again, I'm excited this morning to be able to introduce my dear, dear friend, Pastor Bo Kessler, from what I just learned. The Reverend Bo Kessler. Come on up, Bo. Come on, you can come on up. But, um, you know, it's interesting, I have the privilege as one of the elders of the church introducing others that get to speak and, and stand before us today and open the Word of God. Uh, but what's interesting is I continue to be asked to introduce the folks that now are married and have children, and it's like, wait, I knew them when they were 12. So this feels awkward for me, not quite 12, but all right. I met uh, Bo uh, Johnson in 2001, so we've been friends for 18 years. And then he met me, Bo oh, Kessler, Bo right after that. Oh, I keep but saying. But I got it. Wait, wait, wait. I got to tell you something. Two, two things on this. One. I might not be a pastor, but Michael is a reverend master doctor, so we're fine. We're covered. So Bo, so Bo Johnson is actually one of my dear friends in Atlanta. I was the original. Yeah, he, he is the original. He came later, and he spells his name weird. Have I said weird. Bo Johnson several times already? No, that was this the first is, time. Okay, that was for now. He spells his name weird, too. He's B-E-A-U. Yeah, he is. But I met Bo Kessler, the Reverend Bo Kessler, in uh, 2001, and it has been just a joy to be on a journey with him and Aaron. We had the privilege, Teresa and I, of doing their pre-marriage counseling, officiating their wedding. Uh, obviously, Will and Sarah are part of their family now, and it's just been fun to watch Bo, even as a young student, um, as I think we met your junior year, mm -hmm. um, and just his heart for God and his heart for mission. In fact, I stand here today as a fraternity boy because of Bo. <laughs> and that's a true story, because he yeah. was actually a, a Lambda Chi Alpha, and he invited me into that community and that fraternity to be involved with him in connecting with those men and loving on those men. Uh, for Christ and it's been great just to be able to journey with him and Aaron uh, over these past several years and it's an honor to introduce obviously Bowling Green Christian Covenant principal my dear friend and uh, Bowling Green Christian Academy oh my gosh it's okay there's they're never going to give me grace. the microphone again there's love Psalm 91 we're looking forward to hearing from you today thank you <laughs> thanks Michael oh man that's the best I love it all right you know what let's just dig right in he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Do you have a place in Scripture that you often find your heart going back to? Verses that just resound in your soul? Psalm 91 is one of those places for me. It's a spot I find myself continually coming back to every year that I grow as a follower of Christ. And the psalmist, he continues on from there. He, he writes this about a response to what was just said there in verse one. He says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield 
and a buckler. You know, when I'm feeling low or weak, troubled, distressed, there's something in these descriptives of God as a refuge, a fortress, a cover, and a shield that speaks security into my very soul. In reflecting on these opening verses, I can only liken the feelings that they bring up inside me to when I was little and I would be hurt or in trouble, and then mom or dad would show up, and that feeling of relief from fear that would just come over my body as I clung tightly onto them. And, and here's the things. When we're little, in those moments, mom and dad don't need to say anything. They don't need to do anything. We just need to be with them. Well, I'm excited to be here with you this morning, Brookside. Um, uh, as we've already cleared up, I am not a pastor, reverend, uh, master doctor, um, uh, but I am a member of Brookside, um, and I just feel blessed and privileged uh, to get to be up here with you today and just share with you from one of my very favorite songs. Um, and so as we do that, and before I go any deeper or mess anything up on my own, let's pray and ask God to, to be here with us. Would you guys pray with me? Um, Father God, I am just so thankful for you. Um, and Lord, I just pray uh, as we uh, dig into Psalm 91 today, God, as, as we look at um, uh, what I believe is the truth of the psalm, um, and God, as each of us comes into this morning, uh, just being wherever we're at. Um, God, uh, would you be near to us? Would you speak to us? Would your spirit, Lord, um, fill this room? Um, and would it be all about you, God, and what you're doing um, and how you're moving in our lives? Um, and would that, God, just bring glory and honor um, as we just look at the scriptures together this morning? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as we seek to look at the whole of Psalm 91 together today, um, I want to give you an overview of kind of three main sections that I've got it broken down into. The first is in verses one through four, and we're going to talk through the meaning of the terms used and kind of the overarching promise of the psalm. And then the second section is in the middle, it's verses 5 through 13, we're going to look at the difficulties and some of the seemingly inherent struggles we have with what the psalm is saying. And then lastly, we're going to look at verses 14 through 15, and we're going to see what God speaks directly to about the true promise of Psalm 91. And as we read through those opening verses, I, I think we can all agree that in America, in 2019, descriptives of God as a refuge and a fortress still hold meaning for us. And I think we can even relate to and understand that picture it gives of God like a mother bird hiding its babies underneath the large pinion feathers of its wings. That's what opinion is, by the way. It's the big exterior feathers. There you go. Um, I think we get that, right? We, we can see that. We understand that. But there's an important idea that's in verse 1 that I think is lost on us today because we live in a world of air conditioning and indoor plumbing and very easily accessible creature comforts. And, and I think you guys can, can think of all of those things. Um, and it's a descriptive that would you have lived in Israel, in the arid desert, 
in approximately 1000 to 900 BC when this psalm was first uh, compiled with the rest of the psalms, it would have spoken right to your core. It references a real and daily struggle that you would have had. And let's see if when I look at it, you can catch it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. Today, when we talk about being in somebody's shadow, it's not in a positive way. It means we're feeling unknown, or we're feeling undervalued, or we're feeling like the greatness of someone else is making us look and feel completely insignificant if we're in their shadow. Whereas this, what the psalmist is saying, is anything but that. What our psalmist writes about here is the difference between life and death in the desert. It meant shelter and a safe place with natural barriers and protection from attack. It meant getting away from the beating sun, a cool place, a safe place, the shadow. In many cases, men like Moses or David, who spent long stretches of time in the desert, it would have meant the, the, the comings and the coolness of protection and way to let down their guard and just sit and be and rest. And there's protection. The shadow in the desert, it's a glorious place to be. So, we come back to the psalmist, and he takes this idea of the shadow, and he joins it to God. He connects the shadow to God Most High, their personal covenant God. In one sentence, the psalmist invokes those feelings of physical safety from being in protected walls, and he links them to the emotional safety from being near God Most High, secure like a child with its parents. The verse gives us a glimpse and a glimmer of what it must truly feel like to abide in the shadow of Almighty God. With this picture painted, the psalmist then uses a term to describe how we ought to be in the shadow. Um, and this term is one, again, which I think the richness and the depth of is often lost on us. He says that the person who seeks to dwell with God will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Abiding. Abiding is both an act of the will and a, and a description of physical being, a place where we are. Abide means to accept, to observe, to follow, to uphold, to heed, to acknowledge, and to respect. And yet it also has connotations and meanings of dwelling, staying, continuing, remaining, surviving, lasting, persisting, enduring, and ultimately sometimes suffering. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Can you feel the fullness, the depth, 
and the richness of that. Perspective is everything, isn't it? The place we find ourselves, the situation that we're in, the successes, the hardships, the triumphs, the struggles we walk in affect our outlook. I first read Psalm 91 at a time in my life where I was struggling with feelings of deep shame. I'd done some things post becoming a Christ follower that I considered to be some of the foulest of my life. In deep depression and disgust over who I was, I came to this psalm. And as I read those opening verses, my soul cried out for how much it longed for and wanted those things to be true of me. That I would cease to be who I was and become someone like that. As I read on, I found this picture of a man who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and who abides in the shadow of the Almighty to become even greater than what I first thought. Take a look at what the psalmist writes. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. At the time I first read this, in addition to the place of shame I was in and the longing I had to be someone better, most of you guys know from last time that I spoke, I also struggled with a Bruce Banner Hulk-like condition where instead of anger turning me into a giant green rage monster, anxiety turned me into a hot mess. And so for someone who struggles with deep anxiety, these promises of no fear, no terror, no destruction coming near me, and just watching safely as evil comes but doesn't fell me, felt pretty amazing. In my mind, it meant that I would be able to come into a place spiritually where because of a healthy and right walk with God, I would be able to be something like Neo in the Matrix. And as my friends watched me, we might hear them asking, what's going on? What, what's happening to him? And then my pastor might say in his best Morpheus tone, he is beginning to believe. And then <laughs> when troubles or sin or attack came, this might happen. Now get up. No. 
actually saw Michael Brown do that once. <laughs> now if he tried it, I don't know if he'd get his leg back down after that last move. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, I believe the psalm was saying that like Neo, a Christian could come to a place in their walk where they wouldn't need to dodge bullets anymore, or in the psalmist case, arrows, because they wouldn't have to. My faith as a Christ follower could grow in such a way that as God sent his angels to guard me, I would walk unharmed by the proverbial lions and snakes in my path and not even worry about something small like the pain of my foot striking against a stone. And by the way, the stubbing of one's toe in any fashion is clearly by human reaction the worst pain known to man. I think even when I say stubbing your toe, you can probably feel that kind of a pain, which leads me to the problem at hand. We all know that even the holiest, most composed people we know stub their toes. And I guarantee that when Steve Risky stubs his little pinky toe, like on the leg of a chair or the corner of a wall, the thoughts that are going through his head are not so holy. None of ours are in those moments. And so after I came across this psalm and in an absolutely earnest and sincere way sought to want to make my life better, want to try to follow after this and follow after Christ, I still ran into this problem where there were no battles, no struggles, no temptations or anxiety-inducing situations I faced that felt like that scene in the Matrix, where Neo, just as calm as a Hindu cow, <laughs> dodges bullets and wards off attack with one hand behind his back. None of them felt that way. Rather, those situations to me continued to feel like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, where soldiers are storming the beach at Normandy, and they're righteous, and they're committed, and they're valiant in their cause, and yet still being destroyed by utter peril and death all around them. I wanted to pull a clip from Saving Private Ryan to illustrate this for you, but it was just too intense. It was too real. I couldn't find a scene where some soldier's head wasn't being blown off. And yet, that often feels like our reality when we're under attack, when we're in the trials of life. And since first reading Psalm 91 at about 20 years old, as I've grown, when my friendship with God, I thought, surely the day is going to come when I'm going to arrive. When the promises of verses 5 through 13 are going to be true in my life. And yet, as I walked further and grew deeper with Jesus, they didn't. Can you relate to that? At about 23, I was wrestling with the question of why is that? Why did I continue to be anxious? Why did all kinds of trouble and bad things continue to happen to me? I came to three possible conclusions as to why my life didn't look or feel like the promises of Psalm 91. First, I'm too sinful. I'm too deep in sin. No matter how far I've come, I just can't stop sinning enough 
for these promises to hold true for me. Or two, maybe it's I don't have enough faith. Like Peter when the sea got rough, or Thomas when he saw the resurrected Christ. I doubt. I struggle. Maybe the faith I have isn't even the qualifying size of a mustard seed for mountain moving. Or worse yet, third, they're just empty words of comfort. Like a big placebo from the Lord to get us through. Or maybe even lies altogether. Can you relate to those conclusions? Have you ever wondered why, too? Well, fortunately, at 23, I had experienced enough of Jesus that while I did not understand why, I knew God's goodness. And I've always found in my life, anytime I come up against an obstacle or a struggle, I can work my way back to what I know to be true. And I knew that God was real. I knew I'd experienced in my life. I knew his goodness. Intellectually, I could stand on the process of sanctification I was going through with my sin. I knew, much like Peter and Thomas came to find, that God's grace and love extended beyond where my doubts or fears fell short. And I believed God's word to be true and nothing false to be in it. So as I prayed and read and talked with mentors in my life about it, my eyes became open to a fourth possibility, which today I believe to be the truth and which I want to point your eyes to this morning as well. In reading verses 5 through 13 this way, I was interpreting them incorrectly and not in light of the end of this psalm or anything else we see in the Bible where regularly people, God-fearing, upright, and spiritual people fall under attack and into distress. My fourth and final conclusion is this. I'm not interpreting the promises correctly, and Satan desperately wants me to believe the lie. I know. For some of you guys, that's either an extremely weighty or cliche conclusion to throw down. And uh, let me tell you, I'm not someone who believes that Satan is under every rock, or he's the causality behind every sin or foul deed or trouble that befalls me. But Satan is real. And his forces and he are evil deceivers. And the thing we need to always remember is they are strategic. This lie as to what we should believe about Psalm 91 is a large-scale, full-on attack on your very identity in Christ. It's aimed right at your heart and seeks to stop you from doing what Steve has continually pointed us to in Matthew 16, which is taking up our cross and following Christ. Respected pastor and theologian Tim Keller calls the reading and teaching of Psalm 91 in this way satanic exposition. You see, this deception is the same as the lie and temptation that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in the garden in the very beginning. And he speaks it again to the very person of Jesus when he's tempting him and lying to him after 40 days in the desert. And these are the same strategic and targeted lies that he tells you and I. 
we find his false teaching spoken to Jesus in Matthew 4. Just after Jesus, who has had nothing to eat or drink over that period of time, turns down Satan's temptation to miraculously make bread for himself to eat to show just how powerful he is. It says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. There Satan is, with Jesus, starving and weak, on the very top of the temple, quoting Psalm 91's promises directly to Jesus and saying, go ahead, jump. Throw yourself down and show everyone who you are. Because God has promised he will command his angels concerning you and you won't strike your foot against a stone, much less your body hit that ground. But Jesus, who knows truth from the lie, says to Satan, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Turned down a second time. Satan doesn't give up, but he goes for the gold. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Dear friends, can you see the lie? Can you hear it being told to you? Just like this moment when Satan is saying to Jesus, no need to go the way of the cross. Why needlessly take on all that pain and suffering? God's way is no good. And it just seeks to harm you. God is holding out on you. Maybe you were afraid to command the stone to bread or jump from the top of the temple because you doubt he'll be there. I'll let you be king. No cross, no suffering, no pain. Just worship me. But Jesus, in all his grace and all his truth, said to the liar, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan wants us to believe that if we trust in God, that means no pain, no hurt, no trials. He wants to falsely present the words of Psalm 91 to us so that our walks crumble into, I'm too sinful. I don't have enough faith. And these are empty words. He wants to destroy the power of God's true promise from Psalm 91 in your life. Lest you become another Job or Joseph or Jesus in his way, saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, like Job. Or, do not fear, am I in the place of God? 
what you intended for evil, God intended for good, so that many people should be kept alive, like Joseph. Or, it is finished, like Jesus on the cross, as he gave up his spirit. Even in the face of the worst suffering and trials of their lives, the death of Job's children and the loss of his livelihood, or the betrayal and enslavement of Joseph by his own brothers, or the great pain and sacrifice of Christ on the cross. All three knew the true promise of Psalm 91, that God is a redeemer, and from suffering and trials, he brings life. And salvation. You see, friends, the conclusion to the promise of Psalm 91 comes not in the middle, but at the end. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. So while walking in the light of the promise of Psalm 91 didn't turn out to be like the Matrix fight, or thankfully even storming the beach at Normandy, there is one movie battle scene that I think holds true. In the middle of Tolkien's epic tale, The Lord of the Rings, is the book The Two Towers. And towards the end of The Two Towers, it seems like all hope is lost. And after a brave last stand, the small band of men that are left to fight against the evil of Sauron and his forces seem to have their backs pinned against the wall. Yet, rather than giving up, and giving in to despair, they decide to stand firm and to fight for their cause until the very end. And as they do, a rescue comes that they did not imagine. Right out. Right out and meet them. For death and glory. For Rohan. Of your people. The sun is rising. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Yes. Yes. The horn of Helm Hammerhand shall sound in the deep one last time. Yes! Let this be the hour when we draw swords together. Fell deeds awake. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and the red dawn!
Forbidden Kingdom stands alone. Not alone. It's a good scene to stop it on. But here's the thing I want you to catch. As they rode out to what they thought was just the end, we're just going to die for what we believe in. All of a sudden, that rescue came. And while the picture of Gandalf, like Jesus, is a really powerful one, what I truly hope you caught was what the gentleman who came up behind him said. And that's Aomir who is like the captain of the cavalry and the guard, he said, not alone. Not alone. Just as God calls us to abide in the shadow and hold fast to him in love, because we also stand not alone. The Psalms promise says that God will be with us in trouble. Not that trouble won't come, or that we won't suffer or be wounded, but he will be with us in it. And when it's all said and done, we will be victorious with him. And we know the lengths that God went to to do this. Jesus knows how we feel. He became vulnerable, killable, and went to the greatest lengths to experience the trials and temptations, troubles, attack, and brokenness that you and I do. And he did it in order to be with us and take death head on for us. On the cross, he crushed Satan's head. Now this saying is a callback to the garden and the original temptation where God tells the snake, this was over before it even started. And through these two is going to come someone who in the end, his heel is going to strike your head. Through the cross, Jesus brought the promised rescue to those who abide with him. And as a result of that, the great 19th century theologian Charles Spurgeon speaks of Satan's attack in this way. You fight a vanquished foe. His head is broken. He may attempt to injure you, but his strength shall not be sufficient for his malicious design. You fight a vanquished foe. The only thing that could stop you from finding the rescue and life that's promised in Psalm 91 has already been paid for and put to death on the cross. Not stopped from coming, but taken on by Jesus and vanquished. Therefore, as we seek to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty, 
any suffering we face is just helping us to become more like Jesus. And though we may find ourselves in the midst of the battles and the struggles and pain and arrows whizzing by, in the end, what Spurgeon says holds true. The head of Satan is crushed and we can find shelter and security and safety in the shadow of God. The missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred along with four other men attempting to take the gospel to a remote tribe in Ecuador, famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Elliot ended up literally living that out. And when his wife Elizabeth, in publishing his memoirs and writing his biography, she deeply believed in the fulfillment of Psalm 91's promise in his life. And even in the life of her family and her children, in the years that followed without him. In honor of this, she actually entitled his biography In the Shadow of the Almighty. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Jim Elliot, you've got to watch a documentary called Beyond the Gates of Splendor. It's an amazing account of how the wives and the children of these fallen men continued to take the gospel to the Ecuadorian tribe that killed their husbands and their fathers. And what happened next, I won't ruin it for you here, but in many ways, it's the very essence of walking forward through tragedy in the light of Psalm 91. In closing, my prayer is that you would walk away ready to pray through, read over, and talk about Psalm 91 in community here at Brookside. And that you would come to deeply know this closing truth. Though you will face many battles and temptations in this life, you fight a vanquished foe. Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death on the cross. Because of this, there is real life to be found when we take up our cross and follow Christ. Though our paths at times will be perilous and burdensome, Jesus is with us every step of the way. We can trust that as we abide with him, we will find peace, rescue, and redemption. Thanks, guys.
and travels together through this adventure of life and we are in this together and so as you have needs and as you have pain and struggles as you're walking through storms through a variety of seasons of your life don't hesitate to reach out to the person around you we want to journey with you during wherever you find yourself in the space and place of your life today so that said thank you again Bo would you pray with me Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together and for the important reminder that your promises are not hollow, that your character is steadfast and that your love for us is unconditional. Father, would you remind us today of what is true? And would you also protect us from those lies that we believe? you would show us and reveal yourself to us in very true and invisible ways each day. Thank you for our time together this morning and for this place called Brookside, this family called Brookside, that we can be in this together as we continue to pursue and chase after you, our Father and our God. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Have a fantastic Sunday. <laughs>